Good morning. Today we have the privilege of abiding under and being refined by Matthew 23, verses 1 through 39. A long and powerful passage. Again, that's Matthew 23, verses 1 through 39. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind man, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar, swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, 
that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, All these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you would not see your houses left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, Merry Christmas. (laughs) That's a brutal text, isn't it? Wow, 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 wow. So that's where we are in our study of Matthew 23. And um, we're going to have a good time today looking at uh, the word of God. And here's what I'm praying for you and I'm praying for myself. I pray that today you'll listen to this text for you. Nobody else, not your spouse, not your parents, not your kids, but you. And um, this has been a brutal week for me as I've had to work through this text. And um, I, I see myself here and I believe that you will see yourself as well. And uh, let's just ask the Lord to help us to have ears to hear. Lord, there are passages in the Bible that are scathing in their rebuke. And then there are those that are not only scathing, but also the volume of the material is just overwhelming. And this is a combination of both. And it's such an important concept that we're looking at today, this issue of religious hypocrisy, um, what it means to be a Pharisee. And we're we're asking you to give us ears to hear. Um, Lord, there are... um, Many people here who have heard a lot of sermons in their lifetime. Lord, I've given a lot of sermons in my lifetime. And I just pray that today you would open our ears to hear from you. um, That we would have this be just a moment between us and you. And that we might just even stay before we get into this text. Lord, speak to me specifically about me. Open my eyes to what I'm like. Open my ears to what you want to say. And 
And, um, and then, Lord, give us hope that only comes from you because you know our hearts. There's no hiding from you. You see it all, and yet you still choose to love us and that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so um, remind us who we are, but then remind us gloriously who you are, we pray. And we ask this in your name, in Jesus' name. Amen. It always fascinates me when a particular product in our marketplace so dominates the product line that that particular product becomes the name of all products included. Let me give you an example. Uh, it, how many of you grew up in the South? Okay, that means below Evansville, okay? So, <laughs> South, below Evansville. So if you go to a restaurant and the waiter or waitress comes and you're going to order a carbonated beverage in your area where you grow up, invariably she would say, what kind of Coke can I get you, sweetie? Right? And the focus of that is not on sweetie, but Coke. And the reality is what she means is any carbonated beverage. You could say, I'll have a Diet Coke, or you could say, I'll have a Dr. Pepper. Right? Because Coke refers to all carbonated beverages. When I was growing up, when um, photocopying became, the, um, became normal, it was common to say, instead of, hey, would you go make me a photocopy? Instead, you'd say, would you go make me a Xerox? Good, yeah. So the camera comes out, we take a picture, and we say, now we say, let's take a picture. It used to be, let me take a Polaroid. And, and even today, we have the same thing. For instance, when we talk about searching for something, if you want to go online to look for something, instead of saying, I'm going to search for it, we say, I'm going to Google it. See, this happens all the time. And if you're in business, that, that's the brass ring. When that happens to your product, that's really awesome. The same thing happens, though, with the name Pharisee. Pharisee now becomes a synonym for religious hypocrisy. So somebody comes and they get in your grill and they say, you're a Pharisee. You wouldn't say, oh, I don't know. what does that mean? You know exactly what they mean. It means that you're a hypocrite, that, that how you live isn't really who you are. And today what I want to do in this text, there, there's no more significant text on religious, religious hypocrisy or being a Pharisee than Matthew chapter 23. It includes the seven woes, the famous seven woes of Jesus. And what I wanted to do today was take all 39 verses at once, because I just want you to get the sense of the fire hose that Jesus just pours out on these Pharisees. And the hope would be is that we would be able to listen and be cautioned and be warned because if we're honest, there are remnants and traces and elements of this in all of our lives. So today I hope to help you understand what the traits are of the Pharisees. In, in keeping with the season, I've chosen to give you 12 traits of the Pharisees. Um, if you can think of a ditty that goes along with that, like the 12 days of Christmas, I'd be greatly in your debt. I don't have enough creative uh, power to be able to do so, but we are going to highlight 12 traits of a Pharisee. The first is this, rather obviously, verse 3, they do not practice what they preach. So, verse 3 begins with a, or um, chapter 23 begins with this summary statement that gives really an overarching concept for the entire chapter. And what Jesus says here is essentially that the defining characteristic of these Pharisees is they don't really do what they tell you to do. At the same time, he says that they sit, the scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. 
which was a position of spiritual authority. And what it seems that Jesus says here is that he's acknowledging that there's value in their spiritual position, in that they're interpreters of the law, even though they're horribly hypocritical. So he says, what they tell you, do, but don't do as they do. Now this is important, because what Jesus is saying here is that even a Pharisee can actually teach you something. And the reason is, is that what he's handling is the sacred scripture. And what he has there, and what he's explained to you, is the powerful words of God. This is really hopeful for those of you who grew up in a church and had, in the course of 10, 15 years, somebody who you really respected, and then you found out they were a complete fake. And you look at church, and you're just like, whatever. You don't know which message to believe and which one not to believe. You don't know when he was in the righteous zone or when he was just being a fake. And what this tells you is that more than men and women who are involved in any level of spiritual leadership, more than your mom or dad, that there is a sacred trust that comes through the declaration of the scriptures. And even though it's communicated through sinful, fallen human beings, there's still something valuable because the authority is not the person. The authority is the word. That's important, especially if you grew up in a scenario where it took you years to get back into a church because of a bad example or a bad scenario. Let me just say, on behalf of the Christian church, I'm sorry that you had that example, and I hope that we as a church don't ever fail you in that way. But the reality is we're all fallen human people, and that's why your trust has to be in Christ and his word. So Jesus says about these Pharisees, you can listen to what they say, but don't do as they do. You see, this inconsistency between what they said, what they taught, and how they lived is really the defining and the most tragic and also the most troubling characteristic of the Pharisees. They tell people to do certain things, but they don't actually practice them. And this is hypocrisy at a whole new level. It's one thing to be a hypocrite where you pretend to be something that you're not. It's a totally different game to tell people to do something and then you don't do it. That's, that's hypocrisy on steroids. And what Jesus is after here is this notion that you ought to be careful to do not what they do, but to listen to what they say. Listen, there are a few things that make people angrier than this element of hypocrisy, and it's no wonder. To tell people to do something and then not to do it yourself, that's, that's horrible. In fact, that's one of the reasons why James chapter 3 and verse 1 says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for we know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. So listen, if you're a Sunday school teacher here, or you're an adult Sunday school teacher, kids, you lead in Awana, you're one of our elders, you're in spiritual leadership, just listen very carefully to what this passage is saying, that be warned the more you talk, the more you teach, the, the greater the responsibility comes. It, it makes me tremble to think that underneath my bookshelves in my office are hundreds of pages of sermons that have come out of my mouth. First Timothy 4.16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and your teaching. If you're a young person you aspire to the office of pastor, I would tell you there is no greater calling in life that you can pursue. To study and declare the word is a beautiful and wonderful calling. At the same time, it must be approached with such utter sobriety and carefulness because the opportunity for hypocrisy just goes through the roof the more you talk. 
So they say one thing, but they live another way. Now, it doesn't take a rocket science to realize that that's just plain wrong. I mean, that's, that's just wrong. So how does that happen? That's the question. How does somebody say something and, but not live that way? Here's the second element that kind of answers that question. It's this, that they give themselves exceptions. In verse 4, it says that they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on people's shoulders, but they are themselves not willing to move them with their fingers. So the image is really clear. They are constantly putting heavy loads on other people's backs. Even though those loads are hard to bear, they just keep loading up. Hey, just 10 more pounds, 10 more pounds. No, 10 more pounds. You can do it, you can do it, you can do it. Meanwhile, they're just completely unwilling to touch those loads with their finger. It'd be like, for instance, going on a hiking trip with a friend of yours, and he decides that you're going to carry all the gear. And so they load up the backpacks, the um, little tank that you're going to cook food on. It loads up all of the gear on your shoulders. It's about an 80, 90-pound pack, and you're all loaded up, and he's in flip-flops, khakis, and a polo shirt. And you're like, what's up? Well, you know, I, I, you're going to carry the stuff. I've carried it for years. And so you start hiking, and your flashlight drops out of the pack on the path that you're on, and you're struggling to pick it up, and he's standing there just watching you. And you look at him and like, hey, you're not going to pick it up? He's like, I might get my shoes dirty. And you're just, time to find a new partner to go hiking with, right? Or, or let me make it a little more practical. Maybe your wife goes to Target and just buys all of the food for the holiday season. She's gone for a couple hours, and then she comes back in the house, and she's she's back from her trip, and she's spent a lot of money. She's got a lot of groceries. She's lugging those things in one at a time and got all these bags, and you're over there next to the fire, and you're, you're, you're let's just make it spiritual. You're reading your Bible, okay? <laughs> you're over there. You're just meditating on on Christ and his church, and she's she's bringing that stuff in, and she's looking at you, and she's like... You know, and you're like, I'm sorry, I'm a little busy reading my Bible. I'm talking to God here. And you're just like, I'll pray for you, you know, like that. And, <laughs> you know, and you'd understand if she's like, okay, pal, you're going to starve at Christmas if you don't get up here and help me. So, so the idea is it just, it's just a ridiculous um, inconsistency. But, but the question is, how does this happen? The, the problem is, is that they feel justified in their lack of activity. The contrast between what some people are doing and what they're doing has to be obvious, but then what happens is something else has to trump what should be apparent, to get up and help, to stop laying heavy burdens. Somehow they have a justification in their mind that they're the exception, that there's some kind of circumstances or something that's unique about them, and whatever it is, somehow they, they, they balance the scales. They they think that they have been so good, that they have sacrificed so much, that they've endured so much, they've been at this so long, that they're justified in letting others do what they used to do. And at the root of this is a performance mentality, this, this belief that there's something about them or something about what they do that gives them the right to not be like everyone else. They believe that they're special, unique, different, and in a word, exceptional and therefore they give themselves exceptions this is why many 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 famous people the kind of folks that are on the magazines at the um, grocery store that you shouldn't buy are um, <clears throat> why they're there because there are people who treat them like they're exceptional like they're really talented like they're really good like they got a lot of money and then before you know it they believe their press and all the people around them who are saying that they're so exceptional and then they do things that are just terribly unexceptional 
Because in their mind, the rules apply to everybody else, but not them. You see, this is what happens, is there can be just this mentality that somehow the rules don't apply to you anymore. Third, the third characteristic is there's a focus on appearances. Verse 5, specifically a desire to maintain an image of spirituality. Verse 5 says, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Now get this, since their spiritual practice is inconsistent internally, since they don't practice what they preach, then they have to work really hard at maintaining an appearance of being something that they're not. So they spend a lot of energy and thought of how to be able to give people the right impression. And what Jesus does here is he illustrates this with the description of phylacteries that are broad and their fringes that are long. What, what is this? Well, in the Old Testament, specifically in Exodus 13 and Deuteronomy 6, it commanded God's people to bind the words of God as a sign on their hands and let them be as frontlets between their eyes. And what they did is they took this so literally, and if you've seen even um, modern-day uh, Jewish people pray, um, I was next to one in an airport a couple of years ago, or in an airline um, a couple of years ago. He out, took out this bag and wrapped these, these leather straps around his arm and then held something in his hand. And then he put a little box on his forehead and then wrapped it around and, and, and tied it up. And then he began rocking back and forth. And what he's doing is he's trying to practice Deuteronomy 6, to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's why he's rocking back and forth, to involve the whole body. And these phylacteries are the little boxes in the hand and on the forehead that little pieces of scripture were put in. And so these, this is the way that they literally kept the, the commandment to make the word of God like a front lip between their eyes or put it and bind it to their hand. Well, what they did here is, it just totally makes sense. It's what human beings would do, is they made the boxes bigger and more obvious. So now they got, instead of a little box, they got a big box on their forehead. So people would come to prayer and be like, wow, that's a big box, man. You're like, oh yeah, it's like, got half the Bible in here, you know. And so, and then they, and then they, they would use those three times during the day. And, and it wouldn't be beyond reason to think that they would then wear them around for a little bit. To let everyone know that they had, you know, gone to prayer. Making tassels long, what's that about? Well, in the Old Testament, they commanded that at the four corners of the garment that you would put a blue and white tassel as a reminder of God's commandments. According to Numbers 15, you were to do that to remind yourself about God's commandments. And so they would put these long threads. You know, can't just have a little thread. They'd make the long threads so people would see how religious they were so they could walk around and say, hey man, check out my threads, you know. See this? And, and it would be this heart-revealing display that they wanted to keep up appearances. There's so many ways that we do this. Let me just give you an example. When when in high school, um, there was this this young guy who discovered that he could study the Bible, and he really got into it, and he found the beauty of a Strong's Concordance. Strong's Concordance is this really big, thick book that's got every word in the entire Bible. You can do word searches. and So he got really into inductive Bible study, doing word searches. And he was so juiced about his study of the Word of God and how much he really knew about the Word of God. But it became a little bit of a pride issue. And you knew that because this bad boy started bringing his Strong's Concordance to church. So he's walking in with his big Bible and his Strong's Concordance. And you know he just kind of walked around. And you just knew what he wanted everyone to know is, I know how to study the Bible. 
And there's little ways in which even today we still do things like that. We, we take something that's good and then we add just a little bit to it because we want people to know that we're really spiritual. For examples, in my devotions this morning at 4.30, I... Um, <laughs> You know, I just can't wait to see how the Lord's going to bless us this year in giving our 15% to the church. And um... So last night in our two-hour family devotions that we had, we were talking about uh, these... Or we over-spiritualize things. We take things that really are just about normal everyday life and we just make them all spiritual, that everything is somehow incorporated with God and what He's doing. And true, yeah, God's involved in all the things, but do people really need to know that you prayed about a parking lot space in Castleton Mall? Do they really need to know that? Or is everything really about spiritual warfare? Or you got two or three verses that you know really well and you cite them. Or, this is my favorite, you know three Greek words in the entire New Testament, and you love to throw them out at the most opportune times. You see, the reality is that we're focused on appearances. And we just need to be careful. Here's the fourth one. They love to be respected. Here now, the focus on appearance takes on a new level. It actually becomes official. So the Pharisees loved their official position because now they had places of honor at the feasts. They had the best seats in the synagogues and they would walk to the marketplace and people would greet them, Rabbi! Rabbi! And, and these, these titles, these positions now became a, an official way for people to say, we're impressed. And I imagine the first time a guy heard it after coming from rabbi school, it kind of struck him with a little bit of surprise. He'd, he'd studied hard and, rabbi, wow, yeah. But that gets inside of him. And after a while, he becomes accustomed to it. And you know it's when a problem when somebody walks by you and everyone else says, rabbi, rabbi, and he just calls him, hey, Benjamin. And you're like, hey, dude, I'm a rabbi. The Pharisees loved these honorable positions because... It gave them the official recognition that they felt like they deserved. And the real problem, and this often happens, is that the person wasn't able to separate who they were from the position that they held. So their identity, their spiritual identity, is wrapped up in what they do. This can happen as a parent, as an elder, as a pastor. And you know what happens, um, that this is, is tested when that dynamic changes. I, mean, I experienced this when I went from my last church to this one. I mean, talk about a crazy season. You know, you leave one church, you go to another, and there's this little secret here. There's this kind of this, this thing within you that really hopes that the ministry that you were a part of falls apart when you leave, right? <laughs> Come on. Don't judge me, okay? So. But the reality is, you know what happened? Three weeks after I left, another person came in as an interim, and the church was doing great. And you know what? It was a really good lesson that we're all expendable. I could keel over here and die today, and there'd be someone else to take my place, and this church would be just fine. In fact, it's really important for us to remember that the church is about Jesus Christ and his church, and we are all gloriously expendable. And yet, when Jesus threatened the spiritual positions of the Pharisees, guess what happened? They were so angry, they killed him. 
Notice what Jesus then says after this to his disciples. He says in um, verse 8, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be instructors, for you have one instructor of the Christ. So he's not saying here that you go home and never call your dad, dad, or your father, father. He's not saying that to acknowledge that you have teachers in your life. What he's saying is just be careful that your identity doesn't get wrapped up in this positional grab of, I've got this position, therefore this is who I am. Which is why then he goes on to say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Verse 11, the greatest among you shall be your servant. So they love to be respected. Verse 5, Number five, rather, verse 13, they hinder people spiritually. So the next trait on the seven woes is one of the most tragic. Jesus um, says that they actually shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. Not only are they deceiving themselves, but here's the tragic irony, is that they are deceiving those who would follow them. So what happens is there a spiritual hindrance. How does this happen? Well, first it happens because a Pharisee begins to influence others And that person then begins to embrace their kind of lifestyle, which is a performance-oriented pursuit of God. And so in doing so, they give them a non-grace-oriented view of what God is like. And to therefore have some person embrace their views means that they've been spiritually unhelpful. And secondly, and more often, is that the blatant inconsistency in his or her life becomes a huge turnoff to those who would be followers. Because they say... If that's what this is like, I don't want to follow you. I don't want to be like you. And some of you know exactly what that is like. You had a father or a mother who were horribly hypocritical. And the result has taken you years to get over it. What what they agreed on Sunday and what they said in the context of around certain people was not how they really lived. And there's a caution here for us as parents. Listen to me, your kids are going to learn how to live Christ-like lives, not by what we say in here or what happens in the context of our classrooms. As wonderful and as glorious as this context may be for them, the reality is they're going to learn how to love Jesus based upon what they see in you. And hear me, if you have an inconsistency between Sunday and the rest of the week, you will give them a really bad view of Christianity, and don't be surprised if they walk away from it. So for God's sake, for the sake of your children, stop playing games. In fact, everyone in your home knows it's just a game anyways. And for those of you who had a really bad example, here's, here's, here's the hope for you, and that is that church is more than just the people that make it up. Church is more than leaders. It's, it's more than individuals. It, it really is about the person and work of Jesus and, and he's the ultimate example, and therefore our focus and our love and our direction of our thoughts needs to be upon him. Sixth, strangely enough, they are dangerously persuasive. So the error of the Pharisees would be tragic enough, but the other problem here is that the Pharisee is often dangerously and aggressively persuasive. You see, because there's this connection to appearance and being respected, th- there is this this idea of attracting followers or disciples. And and every time a disciple or a follower is added, it fuels the spiritual pride underneath. 
You see, what happens is by converting others to their ways, it only emboldens them as if it convinces them that they're actually right. In other words, they think in their minds, I can't be wrong if this many people follow me. But the reality is you can be really wrong with a lot of people. Jesus' take is so different. He says, and when they become a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So the convert then is twice as much condemned because often the converted are even more radical than those who do the converting. And Jesus warns them to be suspicious about religious zeal. What's he mean here? He means that just because a person is passionate doesn't mean they're right. Just because there's a large crowd doesn't mean that it's true. In fact, a caution for us as a church is that, look, the reality of having lots of people here on a Sunday doesn't guarantee that we're right. The only guarantee that we're right is that we are attentive to God and His Word and to Christ who is the head of His church. And so the caution is just to be sure that we're, we're focused on the right things. So you may be a young believer and you see other folks and you're like, wow, they're really passionate. They're really godly. They seem to really have it all together. They, they really don't. They may be mature. But if humility isn't leading and if an understanding of their own heart isn't out front, then just be very careful because passion and zeal doesn't always equal righteousness. You tracking with this? Number seven, they are spiritually unbalanced. Next we see kind of a silly example of how distorted their view of religion can really be, such that Jesus calls them blind guides and fools. He calls them this because in verse 16 and 17, they make a distinction between swearing by the temple versus swearing by the gold of the temple. They make a distinction between swearing by the altar versus the gift that is on the altar. So what happens is that their exceptionalism and their legalism now combine to create these strange rules for what a real obedience looks like. And what happens is they can't see the religious forest for the trees. Like little kids who cross their fingers behind their back when they make a promise. I promise, and then they don't do it, and they're like, oh, I have my fingers crossed. So the Pharisees would say, now, you made that promise, but did you swear by the gold, or did you swear by the temple? Oh, you swore by the gold? <laughs> yeah, that's okay. It doesn't, that doesn't really count. Now, if you swore by the gold, by the temple, whew, that's a serious... What is that? It's, it's taking particular specific minutiae and elevating them so you almost create disobedience. Let, let me give you an example. In... Um, in, in the Western Michigan area, there were the remnants of a, uh, a movement that I'll call a King James-only movement. A group of people that felt like the King James Bible was the only Bible that you could use. And uh, they were rather militant about that. And in, in fact, it even led to a particular group of people who believed that if you didn't hear the real words of God, which in their mind were the King James, then you really weren't saved. Because after all, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And if the King James is the true word of God, then if you were saved with something other than the King James Bible, then you probably weren't really saved. I mean, what, what is that? that? That's nothing different than what's going on here. This crazy amalgamation of legalism and this exceptionalism. And once again, what happens is we see that their obedience misses the heart of what God is really looking for. Number eight, they were busy in the wrong things. So the unbalanced obedience of the Pharisees caused them to be very active and very busy. Here's the thing. 
Pharisees and people who are, are steeped in religious hypocrisy are really, really busy people. The problem is, though, that they're busy in the wrong things. Verse 23 says that they are so focused on technical obedience in certain areas, but then they neglect the more important things. So they're known for tithing on mint and dill and cumin while neglecting justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They're known for spending a lot of time to figure out the exact cost of how much they should give in regards to spices, but they neglect the really costly things in life like justice and mercy and faithfulness. They were content to be so busy figuring out how much they should tithe on their spices. While they're doing this, they're straining a gnat and swallowing a camel. And this just piqued my interest as to why would Jesus use these three spices. So I searched, I, I googled, um, and um, here, here they are. So mints at the upper left, um, dill is at the bottom, and then cumin is on the right. Look at the dill. Look how thin those leaves are. So, so get the idea of what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the Pharisees are so concerned that they're literally counting out the dill leaves. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's the Lord's. One, two, three, four. And they're doing this. They're, imagine a guy who's um, sitting um, by the road and he's counting his dill spices, right? And a, and a man who's riding a donkey comes along and he's, he's counting his dill spices. Also, he's like, oh, oh, and he falls off the side of the road. He's got a heart attack, oh, and he's like dying. And the guy's counting his dillies. Just a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Got five more to go. Hold on. He's there. He's dying on the side of the road. But he's more concerned about his dillweed than he is giving the man CPR and trying to help him. And the idea is that you can be so busy, involved in doing ministry-oriented things, you're so concerned about the costliness of the individual service that you're doing, that you actually neglect the things that are really costly, like getting involved in hard people's lives, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Aren't you glad we don't do that? You see, these are the things that are really costly. And what we can do is we can take good things that we do and use them as a justification for not doing the things that are really costly. You know the phrase, I gave at the office. We don't say that. No, it's just this perspective. I've served enough. Busy in the wrong things. Number nine... It is that they are not focused on the heart. The ninth characteristic relates to what's going on in the insides. And Jesus says that the Pharisees are busy cleaning the outside of the cup. says that they're like whitewashed tombs, but in both cases there is an external perception of cleanliness, but inside there is something that's very revealing and disturbing. In verse 25, Jesus says that their clean cups have disgusting contents in them of greed and self-indulgence. Verse 27, that they have beautiful tombs that are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So he's, he's focusing that the external may look good, but the inside might be questionable. For whatever reason, over the last couple of months, I've taken notice of the source of my alleged spring water that's in my bottles. If you ever take, just notice when you just start to look to see where they are. And I'm not kidding you. I picked up a bottle the other day and I don't know if it was spring water or I hope it was the purified water, but one of the bottle of water said, um, water source. And I'm not kidding you. It said municipal water of Plymouth, Michigan. Okay. So that's just kind of interesting. I, I know Plymouth, Michigan 
And the Plymouth Michigan is known for a lot of good things, but one of them is not necessarily um, super, super clean water. So here's my bottle that looks like, I expect some kind of artesian well from northern Michigan or Canada. No, this is Plymouth, Michigan city water is what this is in my bottle. And the reality is the dressing may look like it's artesian water, but the fact of the matter is what's inside is what really, truly matters. You see, and that's what our lives are often like, Jesus says. The outside looks good, but when you really uncap it and look inside, there's stuff that's in there that you know and God knows. Jesus knows that the Pharisees refuse to deal with the fact that they have huge problems in their heart. And, and this is the one characteristic that makes all the difference in the world between Jesus and the Pharisees. It is that the Pharisees neglect the heart. This is the one telling difference. And what happens is that Jesus is relentlessly aiming for the heart, talking to the established religious people about what's going on inside of them. They're playing a game. They're creating this show. And Jesus pulls back the curtains of their lives. Remember that scene in Wizard of Oz where, where Dorothy and, and her three companions are headed there and they see the, the great Oz and then Toto, the hero, the little dog goes over, he pulls the curtain back and there is the guy and he's doing all the levers and he says what? Pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And the reality is, that's how many people live. They, they're, they're, they got a man behind the curtain, and they spent their entire life creating this thing. And then when Jesus comes and exposes them for who they are, they say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. And yet Jesus loves the man behind the curtain. He died for the man behind the curtain. And if the man behind the curtain would simply say, this is who I am, that's when hope comes. And that's the difference between the Pharisees and Jesus, is he's aiming for the man behind the curtain. I just wish once and for all we could just say, you know what, forget about the man behind the curtain. Forget the appearance thing. The Let's just be sure we understand what is really on the line here and that God aims for our hearts. So if you want to know what, what would be like the one thing, if you're asking Mark, what's the one thing that we could do that would be the most significant preventative measure against becoming pharisaical? Here's what I would tell you. Be sure that you constantly focus on your heart. Don't be content with external obedience. Don't be content with it with you, with your spouse, with your friends, with your kids. Don't, don't be content with just things you do on the outside. Be honest about your own heart. Know and be scared about where your heart could go and realize that the only hope that you have of not being guilty of the rank hypocrisy of the Pharisees is to throw yourself at the mercy of Christ because he's the only one who really knows the man behind the curtain and yet he's the same Savior who loves that man and wants to die for him and make him a new creature. The issue of the heart. Number 10, the Pharisees are overconfident. So we're getting close to the end of the list, and Jesus now takes an even tougher tone. In verse 29, he says that they pay honor to the past, but they don't learn from their history. Instead, they look at those who have gone before them. They look at those who've come in, in, in former days through a judgmental lens. They actually think, look, if we had lived during the days of our fathers, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. And little do they know the greatest prophet that they've ever seen is right in front of them. And in a few days, they will crucify him. The problem here is they're way, way too confident. They look at the spiritual disasters in their history and they believe they wouldn't have joined the crowd. They believe they would have listened, but they aren't listening right now. This is so common. It is that we think, I would have listened, but we don't listen now. How come they won't listen, but you won't listen? How come they don't hear, but you don't hear? They are grossly overconfident. And their overconfidence blinds them to the fact that 
they are just like their fathers. And so Jesus says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. They are no different despite what they think. So here we come to an important question that you and I need to ask ourselves, and that is, what do you feel and hear when we talk about the Pharisees? Do do you think, how could they be like that? How stupid are they? And the reality is, the question is, in what ways are am I like that? Instead of thinking, how could they be so overconfident, we need to ask ourselves, am I overconfident? Instead of saying, why don't they listen, the question we need to ask ourselves is, do I listen? Am I listening? Number 11, they are under judgment. This is the characteristic that is incredibly scary. Jesus tells them that they are presently under judgment with more to come. He says, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. They are guilty of rejecting God's prophets, and they will bear the consequences. You know, it's a scary thing when God says, okay, if you don't listen, we'll just let you go your own way and see how that works out. And that's what happens here. Some of you may be under that. You've tried to run your own life. You wouldn't listen. Wouldn't listen to your mom, your dad, your Sunday school teacher, your pastor, friends around you. They all told you and told you and told you, but you wouldn't listen. And so now God has said, look, there's no other option. You have to learn this the hard way. And listen, that path is always a really painful path. Please start to listen. Their sin will be named among the darkest of Israel's history since they will reject their own Savior. And here is the frightening thing. What led to the crucifixion of Christ? It was the religious hypocrisy of the religious rulers of Jesus' day. It was religious hypocrisy that moved them to crucify Christ. And then finally... We get a sense of the compassion of Jesus. His heart comes through so clearly. Jesus pulls back his rebuke and he then speaks to the whole city of Jerusalem. This is the city of David. This is his city. This is the city in the book of Revelation. It says in the new Jerusalem. This is a city he loves and he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under his wings and you would not... Jesus wants to gently gather this people, but their hardened, proud, self-justifying, non-listening hearts would have nothing to do with him. And so the effect of verse 38, Jesus says, See, your house is left to you desolate. They wouldn't, left, they wouldn't listen, so all that's left is judgment. So it's quite a list, isn't it? It's a sober list. A list that includes 12 blistering characteristics. I only have one question for you. Don't, don't check out. Don't check out. The only question I have for you is this. Where are you on this list? I'm not asking you if you're on this list. I'm not asking if. I'm saying where. I'm asking you which of these 12 apply to you. I'm I'm asking to what extent do you resemble the kind of people who you'd never want to be? If you know Christ as your Savior... You have to be very, very careful that you not fall into the trap of religious hypocrisy. If you've been in church all your life and heard hundreds of sermons, that's awesome. Just be very, very careful. Be very watchful 
of your own heart because the murder of the Son of God came at the hands of religious people who had convinced themselves they were doing God's will. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, if you've turned away from church or turned away from Christ because of a bunch of hypocritical people, to you I say, I'm sorry, but don't miss the Savior because of the sinful actions of other people. And finally, oh church, beware lest you be just another Pharisee. Please be careful. Please listen. Please focus on the heart. Please do not simply close your ears and look at the Pharisees through a lens of I'm not like this and ask yourself the question, where on this list really am I? Please listen. Father, I ask you to apply your word in our hearts like only you can for your glory and for our benefit. I pray today that you would um, help those of us who have known you for a long time and who understand your word and have even the ability in some cases to teach and proclaim your word. God, that we would see ourselves in this text so clearly. Father, we have a long way to go to become like your son, and we would not be able to do any of it without your help. And so we again say that we want to humble ourselves underneath your mighty hand. We want to say to you, God, we, we want to know our own hearts. So help us, Jesus. Thank you that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And Father, I pray for those who may be here today who do not know you as Lord and Savior, that they might turn away from the excuses of the past and instead say, Lord Jesus, I need to turn from my sin and that today by seeing they would then come to faith in Christ. Oh Lord, please make that happen. Help us to be a church that's real, that's got real people who really know their hearts and know a great Savior who has changed us. So help us, Lord, save us from a fake religion. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, listen, if, if there's someone here that you need to talk with or pray with today. We have some folks up here at the front would love to be able to pray with you. Don't leave today without being loved and cared for, all right? I love you, College Park. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.